Hi, this is Steve Nerlich, and this is Steve's PhD, Episode 17, I'm in a rut. Okay, so I'm in a rut. It's 2017 now, which means it's Year 6, which means that if I was a full-time student, it would be the second half of Year 3, so this is about where things should be starting to wrap up. If I was actually a full-time student in the second half of Year 3, everyone would be asking me how the writing up was going, expecting to hear a tale of glacial progress and the importance of staying focused. But of course, I have to tell everyone that, Hello, my name is Steve Nerlich. Prepare to hear about thesis by publication. So, I need six publications to finish, and I've got three in print already, And now Publication 4 is going to print as well. Keen listeners may recall that Publication 4 is a book chapter in a book about studying in China. Because I actually went to China, and since my thesis is about the impact of studying abroad on Australian students, and since I am an Australian student, and since I went to China, I figured I should probably say something about all that there's been times when my supervisor has winced a little at some of my publication choices. But not this time. The editors are well known. The publisher is well known. So there's a big fat felt pen tick in that particular box. So why am I in a rut? Publication 5, which I'm writing up now and which is about my survey results. This is the survey I spent a good three years of the last six years doing, and which, despite spending most of 2016 crunching the numbers in lots of different ways, has resolutely upheld my null hypothesis. So while the fruitless number crunching in 2016 had been a little disparaging, the writing up of all that fruitless number crunching in 2017 is really proving a bit depressing. Mind you, people are always saying that academic journals should publish more null hypothesis research. So, for example, if everyone's been assuming X, and you come along and demonstrate that it's actually not X, then that's publishable. But it all rather depends on whether everyone had been assuming X to start with. I know I'd been assuming X, but whether anyone else had been, I'm not so sure. I am confident I'm researching an area that no one has researched before, and I had been figuring that when I was done, I would be able to announce, Hey, look everyone, X! Whereas I now have to come out saying, Hey everyone, look, not X! And my worry is that everyone may just respond with, Well, what dumbass ever thought it was X in the first place? To explain, and apologies to those who've heard all this before. I'm investigating the return on investment gained by governments, universities and their students from all the financial and personal cost involved in getting students studying overseas during their degrees. Getting a study abroad experience has become kind of a big deal these days, with governments and universities investing millions of dollars, although most students still need to contribute something from their own pocket to make it happen. The literature is full of research into what benefits studying overseas can bring. 
better academic grades, better postgraduate jobs and better global citizens are the main themes. The benefit of being a global citizen may have become somewhat tarnished in the post-Brexit trumpestuous world of today, but I think everyone still agrees that better grades and better jobs are better things. But what's strange about all the research that's been done is that no one talks about the different goals and objectives that different students have. And when I say different students, I mean students in different fields of study, going to different countries, and for different time periods. Surely a physics major studying high-energy particle physics, wanting to go to CERN in Geneva for a two-week study tour, has different goals and objectives to an economics student who spends a year in Taiwan investigating the economic impact of its exclusion from the United Nations. So, into me, stage right, wanting to run a student survey which first establishes different students' subject areas, study locations and study durations, and then asks them what their different motives and goals are by giving them a list of options they can scale in the order of their importance. Then I would crunch the numbers to identify all the statistically significant differences between those various student cohorts. So, for example, you'd expect science students might value access to specialised facilities more highly than arts and social sciences students, and students who go to China are surely going to prioritise experiencing a foreign culture over students going to the US or the UK. And surely students going abroad for a full semester are going to be more interested in gaining course credits than students in shorter, not-for-credit study tours. In other words, I assumed I was just going out to confirm the bleeding obvious. I did the logical thing and drew on all the published literature to identify a list of common student motives and objectives. So there was the specialised facilities thing, the foreign culture thing, the gaining credit thing. There was also personal development, which is the whole Gidget Goes to Rome coming of age rite of passage thing, where you're away from your parents for the first time, you have to rely on your own initiative for the first time, which all changes your life forever, blah blah. Then there was getting exposure to different teaching and research methods, and building links with colleagues abroad, and finally, the chance to establish an international career. And guess what? An overwhelming 90-plus percent of students ranked as the overall most important factor, regardless of their study field, what country they studied in, or how long they studied for. The most important reason to study overseas and the biggest benefit that could be gained from studying overseas was, yep, Gidget goes to Rome. It didn't matter if students were doing science or arts or going to China or the USA, or whether they were going for a week or a year. Everyone was going for the personal development rite of passage thing. In retrospect, I can see it's the option that everyone probably felt obliged to pick since about 90% of the marketing of study abroad opportunities 
is all about pursuing a life-changing adventure, and all the pictures show smiling groups of students posing in front of the Eiffel Tower, rather than studiously leafing through textbooks in a library. If I was doing a 12-year PhD, I could just shrug this off and start the whole survey again, leaving out that option that everyone's automatically going to tick first, which would then allow me to explore all the underlying diversity of motives. Well, I'm not doing a 12-year PhD. And in any case, screwing around with the survey for the sake of getting an outcome that supports my hypothesis really would make me a crap researcher. I mean, I did all the right things here. I began with a hypothesis, and then I went out and I tested that hypothesis. Finding out that your research upholds your null hypothesis shouldn't get you thinking you're a crap researcher, and it shouldn't get you burying everything to try and get a different result. Really, it means the null hypothesis probably is correct. And if it's interestingly correct, then it's publishable. If it's not interestingly correct, well, that's PhDs for you. In reality, the large majority of PhD projects do generally go to crap. As a full-time student, you just get three to four years to run your research from scratch to completion, and you have to do it without a research budget. No one is expecting you are going to deliver Nobel Prize material under those conditions. The main idea of a PhD is to demonstrate that you have the capacity to do something useful if you are ever given enough time and enough money. Anyway, my survey's done, and the results are what they are. If I was doing a traditional PhD, from here I could just write up an 80,000-word thesis in which I'd have a 20,000-word literature review from which I would develop an excitingly new theoretical framework for my research topic. That would then allow me to take the reader on a rich intellectual journey as I developed a groundbreaking methodology on paper and then spent tireless months implementing that methodology out in the field, carefully documenting every detail of what I was learning day by day before everything inevitably went to crap. I could then finish off my thesis with a detailed forensic examination of why everything went to crap, along with some recommendations about how a future researcher could avoid all the pitfalls I encountered and potentially do something useful. But of course, I'm thesis by publication guy, so I have to convince someone to publish my years in the making non-result. But let's remember... This is now episode 17 of a podcast series about my PhD that's already spanned five years. So I do have some experience in publishing the unpublishable. And so, back to the typing. Steve Nerlich, PhD candidate. I figured I should pro... I... I figured I should probably, I hate probably, I figured I should probably say something about 